You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I remember he had like colored tattoos on his arm or both arms and on his legs. And they were really big, like scabbed over scratches, not like a cat scratch, but like they had scabbed over kind of thing. And, and it just stood out to me because it was on both arms and on at least one of his legs. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And just a heads up, this is part one of a two-part case. So if you like to binge all your stuff, you can wait until next week to listen to. But just letting everybody know, don't get mad at us. Yes. <laughs> don't get mad at us. No, and everybody and asked, it's worth it. asked to know in advance. And we're letting you know in advance. But we haven't done a two-parter in a while. And... um this one's really worth it. Yeah. This one's worth it. Yeah, it I agree. really is. So we're going to dive into it in a second, but I just wanted to let everybody know that we have an announcement. Uh, we created our first degree TikTok and honestly, we've been crushing it. I think so. I love it. We've made Billy make a TikTok. Maybe by the time this airs, he'll do a second. I still don't know what's going on, but I'm just rolling with the punches. <laughs> and I want to acknowledge Jack is the like Chris Jenner of our of our show she's yeah. like uh, out here she's like fully curating the top <laughs> content so we gotta give credit where it's due uh you know i just like immerse myself into the tiktok world now i'm like you know what we need one but you can search us it's the first degree with three e's and hopefully maybe we can get the regular first degree yes the extra e is for excellence yes 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 um so yeah billy what day is it today all right well today is march 16th and it's everything you do is right day. Oh, well, that sounds like my day. Yes, that's that's exactly. It's Alexis's day, I think. It should just be called Alexis's day. Thank you. Everything's going to be all right today. Everything you do is right day. No matter what happened in the past, today can be its own bright day. Aww. It's going to be a perfect day. Everything you do is going to turn out right. <laughs> I wonder if that has anything to do with St. Patrick's Day being tomorrow. <laughs> like being like, lucky? Yeah, I don't know. Like it's it's close to it for a reason, maybe. I'm kind of into that. Um, also it's artichoke heart day. I love an artichoke dipped in butter, Mm, a little lemon on there. What a vision. Mm. 
Yeah, Billy, but you don't like the finer things. I don't like the finer things. You don't like artichokes? No, I'm not an artichoke Billy fan. doesn't like vegetables. I like certain vegetables. Which? <laughs> Name I'll, one. I'll, I'll, I'll corn on the cob. Corn on the, the cob doesn't count. Corn is barely a, a vegetable. <laughs> he likes potato. Potato. As exactly. A Nothing wrong with that. No, but you don't like any greens. I like broccoli. Oh mm-hmm. my God, Billy. But I wouldn't necessarily order it like, oh, if there's, a, if there's a choice between broccoli and potato, scalloped potatoes, I'm going to go with the scalloped potatoes. <laughs> what about like a broccoli cheddar something? Because the mm. cheddar just masks the fact that broccoli is a vegetable. Yeah, I could do that. Like a broccoli that. cheddar soup. Oh my God, yeah. I'm so hungry. Okay, we got to finish this episode so I can eat. Yes. <laughs> uh, so that's enough of that. Let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Washington, the Pacific Northwest, has been home to a suspicious number of serial killers. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, was convicted of 48 murders of women in 2003. Ted Bundy got a start in Washington before killing women in other states, ending up in the electric chair in Florida. Robert Yates Jr. murdered at least 15 women in Washington state, and the list goes on and on. And maybe, just maybe, there should be one more name added to that list. Who? Well, the man at the center of this story. We begin today's case on September 23rd of 1997. And for those of you that are into astrology, this is a Tuesday under the sign of Libra. Mariah Carey, Backstreet Boys, and Notorious B.I.G. and the Spice Girls were all at the top 10 charts. What a time for music. Indeed. These are all my jams. Oh, dude. I want to go back to this moment in time. Also, Men in Black, Liar Liar, which is like one of my favorite movies of all time, and Batman and Robin were dominating the box office. Like, what a good time to be alive. Honestly, it was like the, you know, contemporary renaissance. Yes. Golden age. The golden age. Before the the internet. Yes. And before the internet. And uh, I actually saw the Spice Girls at Antique Boutique that year. Oh, yeah. And that was a great, that was a, my best sighting ever. So the setting for today's case is Kent, Washington, which is part of the Seattle Tacoma metropolitan area. After settlers arrived in the 1850s, they realized the land was perfect to cultivate hops, which is the bitter plant used to flavor beer. And there's also a range of vegetables like onions and potatoes. The area remained agricultural until the mid sixties when Boeing aerospace moved in. And then it became really industrial. Today, it's the United States' fourth largest manufacturing and distribution area. And something else that's great about SeaTac is that there's beautiful scenic backdrops. There are stunning views and tons of outdoor activities and some gorgeous hiking trails. So many gorgeous hiking trails. I've done many of them. But one such trail is the Cedar River Trail on the outskirts of Kent. And this is a partially paved 17.3 mile rail trail. It's described as a rural river walk along a formal rail bed, and it also has a bicycle path. The trail follows the river from the Cedar River watershed's western boundary downstream to the mouth of the Cedar River, where it empties into Lake Washington and Renton. And it's a popular trail that's utilized by hikers, bikers, and joggers. Alice Underdahl was one such jogger who would often take her dog Lucy, which was a golden retriever, for runs on the trail. 
and she decided to do just that on September 23rd of 1997. That afternoon, she and Lucy had gone for a run. But when she'd failed to return home hours later, her husband Larry grew concerned and grabbed their teen daughter Nellie before heading out to look for 52-year-old Alice at the trailhead. In the parking lot, they spotted Alice's car, but no sign of Alice. As the worried husband and daughter made their way down the trail, they stopped and questioned anyone they encountered about whether they'd seen a woman and a dog that matched the description of Alice and Lucy. One of the people they passed, stopped, and ultimately spoke with was a man Larry described as being a big, hulky guy. At a glance, he looked a little weird and out of place. And when asked, the man told Larry that he hadn't seen a woman with a dog, but he had seen a man with a dog on the trail earlier. Larry and Nellie continued on with their search, still hoping that they were overreacting in their concern for Alice and that she'd appear on the trail any moment. But that all changed around 7 p.m., when they found their beloved dog, Lucy, and she was dead. Horrified, Larry was now positive something terrible had happened to his wife, and he called 911. Approximately six hours later, Alice's body would be found in some underbrush along the trail, and she had been strangled. In the shock of the revelation that Alice had been killed, suddenly the encounter that Larry had with this hulky man on the trail held more significance. Something was very odd about his disposition and the way that he responded when Larry asked him questions. Larry and Nellie were able to describe enough physical details to make a sketch of this guy, and he was described as a white male in his 30s, at least six feet tall, heavy build, shoulder-length hair, a beard, and multiple tattoos. He was wearing a dark tank top and shorts. So we're looking at a sketch that Larry and Nellie helped make with the police after having this encounter on the trail. And the guy has like sort of dark eyes, beady, a little bit of facial hair, sort of like um, handlebar vibes, but like all over that sort of area. And then shaggy hair, got a, got a part, got some bangs, and his eyes look a little dead. And he has like a very heavy brow, it seems, and a kind of bad expression on his face. But yeah, long hair, and I'm sure that's a big... And a th- thick neck. Yeah. I, I think if you were going to describe like what somebody would draw a heavy metal person in like the yeah. late 90s, this is what he would look like. Looks a little bit like Jared. Sure does. So other people on the trail were questioned that day, and they too clocked this hulky guy when they saw him. They recalled seeing the tall 30 to 40 year old heavyset man with shaggy hair and tattoos. It was a sight that gave witnesses a general attitude of apprehension. Who was this stranger? And was he the person who killed Alice? And if so, why? To answer these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Now we're taking you away from the Cedar River Trail to another focal point of our story, a factory in Kent, Washington. So what is the significance of this place? Well, it's where our two first degrees, Mike and Angie, worked and met. And basically, it's a B storyline in today's episode, which is actually their love story. So today, Mike and Angie live in Arizona and have been married for 20 years. And they have two children, one who's going off to college and the other in fifth grade. But in the mid to late 90s, they were still in Kent, working at a company called Micron Industries, Inc. They started as strangers, but ended up in each other's orbits at work. It was a privately held company that did extrusions for the window industry. We met there. My dad was the president 
and CEO at the time. And I got hired into inside sales and then moved up. Micron Industries is no longer in business, but at the time, it was a manufacturer of vinyl and composite window and door systems and extrusions. In 1997, Mike was moving between departments at Micron and transferred to the processing department, which was having a ton of backorder problems. And this is how Mike ultimately connected with Angie. Angie was in sales and would often hear from customers who were upset over their orders not being shipped. So I would so come when- down there to Mike's office and be begging for orders to get out for my customers. And that's how we got to know each other and started dating. At the same time Mike was getting to know Angie, he was also getting to know his new employees, one of them being a guy named Gary Wayne Puckett. And he recalls his first impression of Gary. Gary was very, uh, he was very likable. He was smart. Definitely wasn't somebody that I thought, you know, couldn't work his way through something. Most people got along fine with him. And some additional context here. As far as Mike's role within the company, he was essentially the bad guy in his department. He was always sent in to get the department back in shape. He was kind of like a fixer. So understandably, the employees beneath him were a little apprehensive of their new boss, and this included Gary. He was kind of standoffish to me just because I was the bad boss that had to come in and and his boss originally that they kind of pushed around became kind of like the supervisor he went from a manager to a supervisor and he was under me and and I wasn't having anything to do with shenanigans so for the most part he just smiled and would go do his stuff and would just follow what needed to be done on our new procedures we were doing Like he said, Mike didn't put up with any shenanigans like the last boss had. So many of the employees were a little standoffish towards Mike, including Gary, who he butted heads with in the beginning. It seemed like Gary had a bit of an issue with authority. He was kind of a dominant personality on the floor, which is probably why him and I clashed early on, just from the standpoint of he always had to question why things had to be done differently. And so once he understood it, then he was fine. Angie told us that she doesn't remember ever interacting with Gary since she was in the sales department. But she does remember that her dad, who was the CEO, absolutely loved Gary for some inexplicable reason. My dad, who was the CEO, said, I loved Gary. He was a great guy. He would go on like these walkabouts in the plant to be like the people's guy or give tours or whatever. And he would always stop and like, pick Gary out and, like, introduce him as this great guy. (laughs) As time went on, things at the factory were business as usual. That was until mid-August of 1997, when Gary started noticeably slipping up at work. Mike was just mildly perturbed at first. There was things that started to happen where he would miss work. And he would be a no-call, no-show, and then call the guy who used to be in charge, he'd call him directly and say things like, oh, I had a court appointment for my divorce. To be clear, Gary would basically be a no-call, no-show, and then ask for forgiveness rather than plan ahead and request the time off through the proper channels. This was a very corporate environment with rules in place. And Mike didn't know anything about Gary's personal life in terms of how his divorce was unfolding and the court dates. But frankly, he did not care. 
He just wanted this dude to show up and do his job. In fact, at the time, Mike didn't even buy that Gary was telling the truth about these absences. I remember he was at least married once at the time. I remember that because I started pushing back and started telling HR, I want to see the court documents that says he was at court. Because all he would do is he would call the guy who had been demoted that I had taken over for and say, hey, I was at court for my divorce hearing. And, you know, the guy that worked for me would be like, oh, okay, well, don't do that again. And you got to let us know. And that's the reason why I was brought in to clean up the department, because there was a lot of shenanigans going on and nobody was being held accountable. And I just was like, well, it would have been pretty easy to show a court document saying I was here for my final hearing on divorce versus, hey, that's great. That's what you said. Just go ahead and bring that in. We'll just throw a copy of that in the file and we'll excuse the absence. And then you would have seen that it wasn't for that. And that was my whole point was the whole workaround because I, I didn't get along with HR very much on stuff like that. Mike was frustrated, but he couldn't fire Gary simply for a few no-call, no-shows. Because like we said, it was a very corporate environment, and he had to file a lot of documentation and follow a process in order to terminate someone. That meant that Gary got to keep his job, and even though Mike didn't love having Gary around, he continued working through August and into September. But then toward the end of September, the 23rd to be exact, Gary called in sick. When Gary came back to work the next day, Mike had to meet with him about an issue completely unrelated to his absence. One of his other employees, a woman, had made a pretty serious complaint about Gary. She said that Gary was harassing and essentially stalking her. Not a good look. He was following this girl, Elizabeth, home after work, bugging her. You know, hey, let's go out. Let's just go out and have a drink. Let's go to a movie and he would, he would, well, uh, he followed her home and his excuse was, well, I just wanted to make sure you get home safe and, you know, things like that. Mike and another supervisor sat Gary down and told him that he couldn't follow a female employee home or constantly ask her out. It was sexual harassment and he had to stop. The way Gary responded to this conversation was really puzzling to Mike. And he recalls how it made him feel even 25 years later. He was non-emotional. He just didn't care. Like, He didn't even try to argue about it. He just sat there and just was like, okay, okay. Very short, just, can I get back to work? Okay, here's my write-up, fine, sign the paperwork, just that kind of thing. And I just remember looking at him, and he just had this, like, non-emotional look on his face, like we were bothering him. And all I kept thinking was, man, give me something, at least show something, because you're just one more thing away from being fired. Gary didn't care, and he wasn't embarrassed or remorseful about what this woman was accusing him of. And beyond Gary's sort of glib and flat reaction, there's something else Mike noticed about Gary during this exchange. Gary was covered in massive scratches on his arms and on his legs. We could wear shorts, but they had to be down below the knees. We could wear T-shirts at work, but they had to cover the shoulder for safety reasons, for OSHA reasons. And remember, he had like colored tattoos on his arm or both arms and on his legs. And they were really big, like scabbed over scratches, not like a cat scratch, but like they had scabbed over kind of thing. And, and it just stood out to me because it was on both arms and on at least one of his legs. Mike didn't ask Gary about the scratches because, again, Mike didn't care. 
because Mike just wanted this guy to show up and do his job, but it was something that he couldn't help but notice immediately. Another employee would later tell a local newspaper that they too noticed the scratches on Gary's arms and legs that day. But unlike Mike, this coworker asked Gary about how he'd gotten them. Gary replied that the scratches were the result of a night of quote unquote rough sex. That's so bizarre to say. Very bizarre. <laughs> the fuck? So Gary finished out work that day. And the next day Mike arrived at work, he was baffled to learn that Gary hadn't come in. Another no call, no show. Mike was floored at the balls of this dude, but he was also kind of relieved that Gary was giving him so much ammunition to follow through with firing him. Mike just wanted to be rid of this guy already, especially on the heels of learning that he was making female employees uncomfortable. Then a few days later, another strange thing happened at Micron Industries. Police officers had descended upon the factory and guess who they were asking questions about? 38-year-old Gary Wayne Puckett. But here's the thing. The police were kind of cryptic about the whole thing. Why they were there, what they wanted, and what this investigation into Gary was all about. They asked, you know, what was his work schedule like? When were the dates he missed? We had to pull all those. The police wouldn't explicitly say what they were there for and what they were investigating. But they asked a lot of questions about Gary's work attendance and for documentation relating to the various dates Gary had failed to come to work. Mike gladly obliged, as I'm sure you can imagine, and he provided everything that they'd asked for. And while he made small talk with the cops, just about Gary and about his attendance, he happened to mention the scratches that he'd noticed on Gary's arms and legs the last time he'd been at work. And after hearing that statement, the officer's attention really peaked. When I told him about having to sit down and noticing the scratches, they kept coming back to that. They just were very... They were very focused on the scratches and if there was bite marks, like dog bite marks. Like they kept asking, like, does it look like they were defensive wounds? Like, like he got in a fight. And then they would, you know, ask questions like, was he violent on the floor? Did he have outbursts? How did he get along with other people? And those kinds of things. They were kind of vague. While the police wouldn't tell Mike exactly why they were investigating Gary, they did share one tidbit of information with him, and it was so chilling. Remember all that time that Gary failed to show up to work and he blamed it on court appearances stemming from his divorce? Well, Gary had been lying. Gary had actually been in jail. He'd been locked up because he failed to register as a sex offender when he moved to Kent from another city. It was after the fact that a lot of the information came through and I, I don't remember if it was because they had to explain why they were looking for so much information about when he got hired what days he missed what was his normal work schedule like they were very concerned they were piecing together what days he was actually at work and when he was gone and when he was gone where did he say he was and that's how we found out about the the court date that turns out being for being picked up for not registering as a sex offender instead of the divorce. He didn't register as a sex offender. He failed to register and got rounded up in some sweep and had to go to court for that. But, you know, made this story sound really good that it was for his divorce, which happened on or around sometime during that time. In August of 1997, the city of Kent had done a week-long countywide crackdown on sex offenders who had failed to register in the area. After Gary was arrested for his failure to register, he was held in jail for two days. 
The prosecutor on the case had asked for Gary to be held on a $30,000 bond pending appearing at his hearing scheduled for two months later on November 10th. But the judge declined the bond request and released Gary on his own recognizance. So Gary returned to work and carried on as business as usual. Mike was stunned. What kind of person was this guy he'd been working next to? Mike had no idea what the police's line of questioning was connected to. Had Gary done something, hurt someone, or worse? While the police remained tight-lipped, one thing was clear to Mike. These cops suspected Gary of doing something terrible. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French. And it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten. And I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Allo Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Allo Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to allomoves.com com and use code first for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code first, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code first. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries a state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album 
and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. In September of 1997, the police were looking for 38-year-old Gary Puckett after he'd stopped showing up at work. After the alarming discussion Mike had with the police, he was just happy to be rid of Gary finally. Mike was alarmed clearly based on the police's line of questioning. They believed Gary to be dangerous. And it turns out they were investigating Gary as a possible suspect in the murder of a local jogger, 52-year-old Alice Underdahl who, along with her dog Lucy, had been killed on the Cedar River Trail on September 23rd. The day before Gary came to work, wearing some pretty horrifying scratches on his arms and legs. The police had begun the investigation into Alice's death by sifting through files on registered sex offenders in the area. And it turns out, the police actually had very good reason to look into Gary in connection with Alice's murder. Because it turns out, He had a very checkered past, and this isn't something Mike knew about. And it's one that no one at Micron Industries had any idea of. Angie and Mike, both employed by Micron, were shocked. Remember, the year was 1997, and background checks were rudimentary and limited at best. You could lie about almost anything before the internet was standard. And the truth was, the breadth of Gary's criminal history was as wide as it was deep and illicit. And here we go. We got to go back yet again. Gary Wayne Puckett was born July 3rd, 1959 in Pasadena, California. And he started showing signs of trouble at an early age. He was a runaway at 11, a delinquent at 12, and a petty criminal placed into detention facilities at 13, 15, and 16. But maybe this was kid stuff, right? Nothing he can bounce back from as an adult. Yeah, you'd think. I mean, that is possible. Some delinquent kids go on to turn it around. But that was not Gary. Things took a turn towards the severe in 1980 when he pivoted towards brutal violence. In February of that year, the then 20-year-old Gary broke into the home of an 86-year-old woman. Not just any random woman either. The home belonged to the grandmother of a friend of his. 
Once he was inside this house, he went upstairs and found his friend's grandmother in bed. He approached her quietly, then he pounced on her, and he proceeded to choke her with both a pillow and his hands. Once she was unconscious, Gary stole a ring off of her finger, then he raped her. The woman suffered a stroke as a result of this attack, but she was still able to identify Gary as the assailant, and she recognized him because he'd been to her house before accompanied by her grandson. Gary was promptly arrested and charged with first-degree rape, burglary, and robbery, and it really is a crazy, it's a crazy thing for a 20-year-old kid to do. After he was charged, Gary was ordered to undergo a psychological evaluation to see if he was competent to stand trial for raping his friend's grandmother. The result of said evaluation showed that Gary was, quote, a bright individual with some ability to control his hostility, suggesting that he is the type of psychopath who is able to achieve his end through manipulation rather than violence, like, which is terrifying and crazy. Yeah, also not great. I mean, I guess like the worst a worse assessment would be like violence at all times to get what wants. Yeah. <laughs> but at least he's manipulative too. I guess that's a plus in this context. For him. Yeah. And other notes in this evaluation cited Gary as assaultive, dangerous, and not amenable to treatment and will most likely reoffend. No remorse. He was described as having multiple personalities, being antisocial, and having a polymorphous sexual deviance, meaning he was indiscriminate in choosing his victims. And I think that's a really interesting, I'd never heard that term before, like seeing it there. And it's the kind of person who would rape a grandmother, but yeah. also someone they pass on the street or also, you know, someone of the opposite sex given a vulnerable like, situation. They're like yeah. just exerting power is sort of their thing. It doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. It didn't have a type. Like you see Bundy had a type, but then you look at like the Boston Strangler, he was just, it, it didn't matter how old the person was. Right. So the evaluation went on. Gary, who by age 20 was six feet, four inches tall and stocky, they said he harbored, quote, thrill of rape fantasies about chasing or trapping someone and raping them. He was a chronic peeping Tom, compulsively exposed himself and had a keen fetish for women's underwear. According to the evaluation, Gary knew he was a danger. He told the testing psychologist that he had an evil in my gut and heart. And the evaluation concluded that Gary was unsafe to be at large due to a habitual and dangerous pattern of behavior over a number of years. In other words, Gary's behavioral prognosis was not great. In fact, it was incredibly bad and he was incredibly dangerous. Well, it's so interesting. You see why they say that because so many of these things you see in like classic escalation, you know, like yeah. what was it? Didn't Joseph D'Angelo, I mean, he was a peeping Tom. He would expose himself during... Mm -hmm his attacks. And like Gary would also steal women's underwear during these, these sort of things. Like he's stealing trophies, he's stealing rings. Like this is classic, scary, scary boy shit, like yeah. 20 year old on a trajectory towards real darkness. So when the evaluation was complete, trial officials met to decide whether should he be convicted, Gary should go to a prison or a treatment facility following the anticipated conviction for this rape of his friend's grandmother. The evaluator said Gary might be an escape risk from a treatment facility. So in his opinion, if Gary could be locked away for the rest of his life, then obviously society would be protected. And this whole issue would be rather moot. So this is what they're saying about this guy in his 20s. Ultimately, the determination was that Gary was in fact competent to stand trial. And should he be convicted, a prison would suit Gary just fine. 
The case would ultimately go to trial, and due to the overwhelming evidence against him, he was convicted. And with that conviction, he was sentenced to life in prison with a mandatory 15-year sentence for his crimes. Doesn't seem like enough, but it's better than nothing. Jesus. So by 1984, Gary had settled into prison life, and he had even gotten married behind bars to a woman named Cheryl. I also wonder, like, how... And I couldn't find anything else on Cheryl. It's like there wasn't like prisongirlfriend.com or whatever people are using these days to find yeah. each other. Like, how did how did they? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> how did they even schedule prison visits before the Internet? Like, I'm always so baffled by I this. Don't yeah, know. there was still pe- there was the ads in the back of magazines. Yeah, saying, that's what I was saying. Yes. Yeah. They had to find their girlfriend somehow. Yeah. And you always, I mean, what I've, when I've talked to people about this, they say that one of the reasons why women like inmates is that they know that the, where the guy is at all times. Well, but then I've, we've also heard these crazy stories, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we've covered some of them, where, like, they still cheat. They still write to other women oh, yeah. and, like, pine I mean, for other women. A shitty man is going to be a shitty man, no matter what constraints you have on him. Like, yeah. they, they will, will find, find the way. a way to cheat on you, <laughs> even if they're locked in a box. Yes. And, you, and you are slumming it with yeah. him, thinking, like, oh. I got a man who won't cheat though. They're like, Haha, hold my beer. I feel like it would just be better for a woman that like doesn't really, it's like you want the companionship, but like you just you get away from me. Yeah. You don't want to do, do it around and you don't want to have sex with them. You just want to call once a day to be told you're loved, yes. which kind of sounds it nice. Sounds delightful, to be honest. <laughs> All right. But somehow though, Gary was paroled from prison in 87 after only seven years. Remember, he had received a life sentence, and the guidelines at the time said he was eligible for parole after serving only seven, which makes no sense since it was initially reported that he had to serve a mandatory 15 years of his life sentence. And this is absolutely insane because he was clearly the type of person who should be behind bars or should be in a hospital because we just read you that evaluation. Either way, the decision to release Gary was clearly a mistake. Because within a year, his parole was revoked after he made threatening and sexually harassing phone calls to women and stalked teenagers at a mall, following one of them into a lingerie store. Yeah, I mean, this guy literally is out for a second and starts exposing himself to minors. So, like, again, it's just it's just crazy that given what we've seen in that evaluation and then his behavior when he's out in parole, it's all pretty nuts. So as a result, though, at least he was sent back to prison and It's in the midst of his second prison stint that something happened, something really coincidental. He actually met a prison chaplain named Jerry Puckett. Gary Puckett and Jerry Puckett. So if you're wondering if these guys are related, the answer is yes. And that is quite the coincidence. So Gary learned that Jerry was a cousin of his father's. And it just so happened that Gary had been estranged from his father, probably because Gary exhibited a ton of deviance that disturbed his family. But I'm not yeah. going to make assumptions here, but they were estranged at the time. So Gary asked Jerry, his second cousin, if he would mind putting Gary back in touch with his dad. And being that Jerry was family and, you know, a man of the cloth, he did oblige. He did make the effort. He got in touch with Gary's dad. But Gary's father remained staunch in that um, he wanted nothing to do with his son. And you have to look at this, whether you're a piece of shit human or a great person, that's going to sting. And like a lot of this stuff, like rejection from family or, or, you know, like there has some like sort of primal implications and it's unclear how anyone would react with that. And there's no way to know if it maybe stoked the flames of Gary's 
possibly escalating deviance. But regardless of this rejection by his father, Gary reportedly took his treatment program seriously and appeared to want to better himself. That's what the documentation at the time said. So after undergoing two phases of the Twin Rivers Correctional Facility's sexual offender treatment program, Puckett was again released in 1994. Whatever progress Gary appeared to make during those treatment plans seemed to halt in 1994 after he was released and moved into a halfway house in Seattle. During his stay in the house, the director who ran the program didn't particularly like Gary at all. According to his reporting, he found him to be extremely cocky and seemingly indifferent toward their program. When parolees go through the program, the average stay is about eight weeks, and Gary left after three. And there's not a ton of concrete info about Gary that's publicly available between 94 and 95, but we know at some point he separated from his wife, Cheryl, who he'd married when he was behind bars. And he remarried his second wife, Donette. Parole paperwork from the time refers to Donette as a stabilizing influence in Gary's life. Women stabilize every everything. Yeah, you're welcome. Like <laughs> an unbridled man is no good. Like whether it's a sister or a mother or a friend, like they need the, the wisdom of a woman like in their ear. Yeah. I, I, I firmly believe that. You're lucky to have us, guys. I mean, we're just the picture of reason and nurture. Yes. Okay. Back to Billy, our story. Billy, say, say I'm wrong. You're not wrong at all. He, he knows you. you're so right. Spot on. I'm literally oh spot on. With him. Without yeah. us, Billy would just be like bumbling through the universe alone. That is, that He'd be a true. wilted rose on the sidewalk. <laughs> yes. Back to our story, ladies. On paper, Gary stayed out of trouble. Until 97, when he was ticketed in April for driving with an expired driver's license. Things seemed to be on the decline for him from that point forward. Later that year, Gary and his second wife, Danette, filed for bankruptcy. The filing paperwork cited that the couple was $30,000 in debt and listed just $3,700 in joint assets. On his paperwork, Gary listed himself as being unemployed, while his wife worked at Goodwill Industries. At the time, Gary was receiving $1,200 a month in government assistance. Danette was earning a monthly take-home pay of $772. And at some point before August of 97, Gary and his wife moved from Seattle proper to Kent, and he got a job working at Micron Industries, you know, the factory where First Degrees Angie and Mike worked. And following this move is when Gary was supposed to and failed to register as a sex offender with Kent County. Then, in August of 97, Gary's wife, you know, the stabilizing influence, up and left him. And it's at this point Gary really seemed to revert back to his predatory tendencies. That same month is when he was arrested for failing to register as a sex offender and failed to show up to work at Micron Industries. It was later reported that many of Gary's neighbors had been really concerned about him. One such neighbor spoke to the media and shared how police had come to Gary's apartment in August of that year and told her that Gary was an unregistered sex offender and asked if she had ever seen any children in his apartment. She said that she had not. That is so disturbing. Yeah. That cop and that cop is I don't feel like they would do that now because they wouldn't want to like incite me like panic. And maybe it's nice that they did it, but to be like, hey, this almost 40-year-old man, have you seen any like kitties over there? Like I'd be so disturbed. I would also I'd just want to move. Yeah. I would feel completely unsafe and but it was before like we have sex offender websites now where like in your zip code you can see the sex offenders near you if yeah but if the guys if they, if register. they register though yeah 
Can people still evade registry? They just like don't do it. I'm sure that, yeah. I think it just depends on where you live and like how quick they can catch you for not registering and whether they, you're checking in with your like officer enough for them to notice or, you know, give a shit. It's a more, it's all about like checking in. And I think some counties are better than others at, at monitoring and enforcing it. Right. So understandably, this upset Gary's neighbor. And even when Gary returned home after a few weeks and said the whole incident had been a mistake, she wasn't convinced. But as weeks passed and she didn't hear any more from the police, she just started believing everything was okay. But it clearly wasn't. And all this presents a question. If Gary's failure to register as a sex offender resulted in an arrest, wouldn't this be a clear violation of the terms of his parole? Shouldn't he have been sent back to prison? Well, ordinarily, yeah. But what happened? Apparently, Gary's parole officer made an executive determination about what had happened. According to him, Gary wasn't trying to purposefully evade authorities. He had simply made an honest mistake. This was a clear case of innocent negligence. Gary was released, and his arrest wasn't considered a violation of his parole. And he went back to work at the Micron factory. I find this so odd because it's like, isn't that a clear instruction you're given when you like you are a sex offender? You must register. I'm just sort of like, what excuse did he give you? Like, what excuse made this poor, manipulatable parole officer like be like, hmm, seems like a good guy. Yeah, it's he must have given him some sob story or something like that because... It's, it's oh, just he seems like a better. good dude. Like that, you shouldn't be able to be manipulated that fast. No. Like, if you're a parole officer, you should treat everyone like they're a sociopath. Yeah. Because you don't know whether they are, but they've been in jail, and it's your job literally to just keep them on track. You're like, I like this guy. I'm gonna and give some, him a little some free nice pass. people, but some good people end up behind bars. But that's still just part of it. Of good you know, it's like bars. Yeah. I'm of course, so. but like you know, parole officers should be single track and like always think the worst case scenario should happen. Yeah. Like, you should treat them like the worst case scenario could happen. And, like, I feel like that wasn't done. I think especially when you're dealing with uh, sex offenders, yeah. Yeah. If you're dealing with drug offenses, no. You're dealing with sex offenders, yeah. You might want to err on the side of caution. Mm, oh, but except the, the drug the drug dealers dealing fentanyl. Well, I mean, it's pretty bad. Okay. That's dealers, a different yeah, story. <laughs> We're not talking weed here. I mean, come on. No. Okay. So, as you already know, comes the end of September when Alice Underdahl and her dog Lucy were killed while on a run on the Cedar River Trail. And we told you about the horrific circumstances that led to her life being stolen. But what we haven't shared is how beloved Alice was. She was a mother, a wife, a flight attendant. She was someone who volunteered for causes that she was passionate about. And she was someone who taught Sunday school. And when Alice's body was found by volunteer searches the day after she vanished, she was approximately 60 yards off the trail. Her body exhibited obvious signs of trauma and she had been strangled to death. As the days passed without an arrest in Alice's case, fear shook the community, especially because four months before that attack, there had been a similar attempt on another woman on the same trail. The woman had been knocked down by a man who started choking her, but he was scared off by a passerby who stepped in to intervene. The public wanted answers, and obviously so did Alice's loved ones. United Airlines, which is the company where Alice worked, even offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in Alice's murder. The media helped by circulating the sketch that Alice's husband and daughter had helped craft with law enforcement. And ultimately, two things led police to suspect Gary and Alice's death. 
First, his name came up when police looked through the local sex offender files in the area. The next thing was the sketch, produced with the help of Alice's husband Larry and daughter Nellie. As media outlets circulated the sketch, tips started to flood in. Viable ones. And one tip in particular interest was the sketch very closely resembled a 38-year-old level 3 sex offender who was out on parole. His name, Gary Puckett. Right. And they got, meaning the police, got a picture of Gary and corralled all the witnesses who were at the Cedar River Trail on the day of Alice's murder. And they showed them these photos of Gary compared to the sketch. And uh, they all identified him as being for sure the guy they had seen. And this was several people. And when you put this sketch next to Gary, it you know, it's a sketch is an abstract art, but it's like, <laughs> It's like an artist channeling Gary. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's very close. Um, It's the facial hair. It's like almost as if the artist outlined the facial hair, but didn't fill it in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's uh, the the hairs there, the thick neck. Holy shit. His neck protrudes like almost to his ears. (laughs) Oh my God. Doesn't it? Look at it. It's like he's got this fat neck. He captured the vibe. Absolutely. The hair is a little bit different in terms of like the part. Um, Obviously, this is probably one of his um, uh, one of his mugshots taken from back in the day. He had his hair down a little bit more. But yeah, it's the vibe. And if you saw that sketch, you would be like, you know what? That's the guy. That's the guy. Also, not to sound like too, you know, interpretive, but the sketch it's probably, you know, the one Nellie and Larry, the husband and daughter of Alice, helped make. Yeah. The sketch looks like evil, you yeah. know, because that's how they, they see this person as like po- maybe being involved. And it's like it looks like it looks like Gary had he be if he was scowling, you know, it looks, yeah. you know, imagine if his eyes were open a little bigger, it would look a lot more similar. But I think that's interesting because like a lot of times sketches take on sort of like a sinister look. Yeah. Because of the context of that. Absolutely. So once police suspected Gary, they then had to locate him. They went to his residence in Kent on North Central Avenue. The apartment complex was in an area of car dealerships, several fast food restaurants, and a bowling business. Once they got there, they made some startling revelations, starting with the fact that his wife, Donette, had left him, which is something that should have been made known to his parole supervisors, because remember, she was his stabilizing influence per his parole assessment papers. So when police went to Gary's house, they didn't find his wife, but they found a guy identified as Gary's roommate living there. And they revealed something troubling. It turns out the day after Alice's murder, Gary's roommate had come home and found a note from Gary that indicated that the roommate could have Gary's beloved motorcycle. The note made no mention of why or where he was going. Then when days passed with no sign of Gary, the roommate said, and he grew worried. When police interviewed the roommate, he described Gary as, quote, a big teddy bear. He also described him as a puppy. He said he'd known Gary for a long time, but he knew nothing about his past. What he saw in Gary was a guy who loved the outdoors. He loved camping and fishing. He was also a guy who was a ladies' man. He had a lot of girlfriends. He loved music. He loved playing the guitar. It was a very different portrait of Gary. Regardless, at this point, the search for him intensified, especially because of timing. Of when Gary vanished off the grid, that timing aligned so precisely with Alice's murder. It was at this point that the police went to Micron Industries to try to find him at work. Right. And law enforcement also tracked down Gary's ex-wives and girlfriends to question them. 
The fear, of course, was that he was armed and dangerous and that he may lash out in acts of desperation, anything to avoid being caught, anything to avoid being sent back to prison. And at that time, they had no idea how right they were to be afraid of what he might do. Law enforcement agencies across Washington were notified to be on the lookout for Gary Puckett. He would be driving a brown 74 Dodge with Washington plates. But these cops, desperately searching for Gary, had no idea he was already long gone. The day after he left Seattle, Gary arrived at his wife Donette's home in Vancouver, Washington, where he reportedly begged her for money and expressed that he was suicidal. His wife didn't help him, and when Gary left, he headed east. He crossed into Idaho and headed north to the Panhandle, which bordered Canada. At 2 a.m. on September 27th, Canadian border guards stopped Gary as he tried to cross into the country. Luckily, they did their jobs properly and denied him entry because of his convicted felon status. Later that night, he bought ammunition for a 45 caliber llama handgun that he'd gotten when he stopped in Columbia Falls, Montana, and he traded in his guitar for a pistol. These revelations about Gary Puckett were stunning to those connected to him and for those on the periphery of his life. As you know, our two first degrees work with this guy. Thinking back, Mike recalled that disturbing exchange he'd had with Gary when he had to issue a warning about harassing another Micron employee. He was probably sitting there thinking, I'm going to cut you up in pieces and mail you back to your family. I mean, it was just like he was non-emotional. He just didn't care. Our first degrees, Angie and Mike, were eventually made aware of Gary's disturbing history, including the rape of his friend's grandmother when he was 20 years old. When I read, it was an 86-year-old woman, and it was a grandmother of a friend of his. I mean, you're just like, you raped an 86-year-old woman. I, I, mean, a, I mean, that is just appalling. As a man, I just don't even understand how you could you could even think about something like that. I mean, rape, let alone an older person. I, I mean, I don't mean it to sound wrong. It's just how do you, you I couldn't even understand the mindset of, yeah, this is a good idea. Well, I have the answer to that one. Because rape is not about sex or about attraction. It's about power. And two, easier to exert power over than a defenseless grandmother. Gary clearly had the ability to repress his dangerous impulses, at least to some degree. He wore a mask at work, a mask that concealed the depths of his predatory nature. But now it seemed as though all control was lost. He was armed, he was dangerous, and he was the lead suspect in the murder of a beloved wife and mother, Alice Underdahl. And by this point, police had already started to suspect that Gary could be connected to many, many more crimes. Scarier still, if Gary Puckett really was suicidal, as he had said to his estranged wife, Donette, he may be looking to go down in a blaze of glory while indulging his final predatory impulses. And unfortunately, that's exactly what Gary intended to do. All 
right. Well, a big thank you to Angie and Mike, who will also be with us next week as we conclude with part two of the Gary Puckett saga. If you're listening right now and you have a story to tell, no story is too small or insignificant. Please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group because we're talking true crime all the time. And then follow us on TikTok and stick around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feeds. And eventually Patreon. <laughs> and eventually, oh, Patreon's coming soon. Patreon, first week of April. A few weeks. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. <laughs> Happy be yourself, be your best self day. What Happy, is it? No, uh, is everything artichoke. you do is right day. Oh my God. Well, that's yeah. pretty much <laughs> synonymous. It's also artichoke day. Lest us forget. Ooh, buttery. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Kate in Cleveland. Sources for this episode are Seattle PI, Spokesman, Court Documents, Seattle Times, Williston Herald, Q13 Fox, The Tacoma News Tribune, The Seattle Post Intelliger, Court Documents, and as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.